today we're going to wrap up the um, we're going to wrap up this series called Legacy Makers from Hebrews chapter 11. And throughout the last few weeks, um, we've been looking at the individuals that the writer lists and how God used them to bring a legacy into their life. And so we've talked about uh, what it meant for uh, Abel to give a better sacrifice than Cain. Uh, we've looked at what it meant for Enoch to walk with God and then just be no more. Uh, we, we've looked at Abraham and his willingness, as Pastor Kayla helped us look a few weeks ago, about what it meant for Abraham to, to leave his homeland, to go, uh, to cut ties, uh, to be committed to God and, and what God wanted him to do. And we, we looked at all of these processes. Last week, we, we began to talk about the people who live for something beyond this. And, and the writer to Hebrews, as he's going through this list, kind of this hall of fame of faith, he, uh, he, he does something really unique starting in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read it for you. And if you've, uh, if you've grown up in church um, or if you've researched the Bible, then what I'm going to read to you is going to like kick in all of these images from when you went to Sunday school, okay? But if you didn't, if you didn't grow up in church, I'm going to read this and you're kind of going to look and go, why in the world is that there? And, and we're going to look at it this morning because here's what I, I, I know. I, you know, some things you believe, some things you know. I know these verses are in this chapter in order to help you and me understand what it means to live our life with a vision. As we talked a few weeks ago, a vision is more than a dream. Dreams are just things that we think about. Dreams are things that we wish for. But visions are things that take place in our mind first and then in our reality. They become reality. The difference in a visionary and a dreamer is that a dreamer has ideas. A dreamer has things they think ought to work. But visionaries have the ability to connect the dream with the reality of what has to happen to make it come true. And as this writer in the Hebrews is talking about these people of faith, he comes to a list where he literally includes five generations of time in about four verses. And yet every part of it is essential to what it means to have a vision for your life and to have what God's vision is for your life. So listen as I read starting in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, his son. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, his beloved son. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, Figuratively speaking, God did receive, he did receive Isaac back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, why in the world does he take this time to suddenly go through this very quick list of five generations. It's because he wants us to know a couple of things. First of all, I love the Bible because the Bible never presents the people in the Bible as perfect. Every one of these guys that he mentions, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, they all screwed it up somewhere. They all messed up their life somewhere. 
Something either was done to them or they did something to somebody, but every one of them was someone who had a broken place in their life. And the broken place becomes evident when you know their life. And what also becomes evident is when there's brokenness, then there is opportunity for redemption. There's, there's opportunity for someone to be redeemed. Now, that, that's a word we're gonna talk about today. What does it mean to be redeemed? If you have a vision for your life, if God has a vision for your life, I promise you it includes this concept of redemption. It includes being redeemed. And so the writer is going through all this list of histor historic figures from the book of Genesis who've lived by faith, and everybody thinks there are all these great people. And he's like, no, no, wait a minute. You've got to look at these guys, and you've got to understand that they lived by faith in spite of their brokenness. I, I grew up in a preacher's home. My, my dad was one of those uh, bigger-than-life figures and uh, whose ministry took him, uh, I think he preached in something like 45 of the 50 states doing revivals and camp meetings and that kind of thing. And uh, everywhere I'd go, someone would look at me and go, oh, you're his kid. <laughs> and then I'd have somebody say, man, what is it like to live, you know, kids in the church? What, what is it like to live in the preacher's house? I mean, it must be like perfect there. Everything must be great. I'm like, are you nuts? You, you want to talk about not great? You want to see my dad? You ought to see my dad on a Sunday afternoon after he's preached, and this was back in the days when we used to have a, night, a second Sunday night service where the preacher had to preach a second sermon that was different than the one in the first service because people would get mad at him and say, oh, he's just repeating the sermon, okay? And so they would, they would, they would do that, and, and he'd have to be ready to do another sermon that night from different from the one that morning, and then he would be worn out from the week, and, and he'd be sitting there, and, and the air conditioning would break in the house, and so he's peeled off his shirt, and that's not a sight anybody wants to remember. And he's sitting on the couch, and he's watching his favorite football team, and they're getting beat, and he's not happy. And now I'm looking over at him, I'm hearing some kid's voice going, man, your dad must be perfect. I'm like, are you nuts? No way. By the way, if you talk to my boys about me, they'll tell you the same thing. I'm a long way from perfect. Long way from perfect. Oh, and by the way, no matter what kind of image you're trying to product, produce for people, so are you. You're a long way from perfect. And that's why I love the Bible. Because the Bible is very clear that all of these people that we've tried in religion and tradition to make into icons and idols and, and no, 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 listen. They're broken people just like us. They're broken people just like you. And so when this writer says, it's by faith that Abraham did this, let's look at the stories. The stories of five generations of a family, of a very dysfunctional family. If you think your family's got crazy, these people got crazy, all right? So let's start with Abraham. We already talked about the fact that you know, he, he did a good thing. He left, he left his homeland. He followed God's calling. He did all that. Pastor Kayla helped us understand that a few weeks ago. Did a, Abraham, wonderful guy, except for this. Whenever God's promises didn't come true in his time frame on when he thought they ought to, he took matters into his own hand. You remember Pastor Kayla talked to you a little bit about it. I'm gonna tell you more about it. See, the fact of the matter is God promised him a son. And through that son, he would have descendants and those descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky, the sand on the, on the beach, all the grains of sand, all of that. This is gonna be this powerful nation. And Abraham gets older and older and older and no son. And he and his wife are past the age of childbearing physically. 
It's going to take a miracle, which, by the way, normally redemption starts with a miracle, just so you know. We just get tired of waiting on the miracle, so we start trying to make stuff happen. We start trying to make it happen in our own, trying to understand it. And that's what happened with, with Abraham and his wife. She comes to him one day and says, hey, listen, man, you, you know, I'm not going to be able to have a baby. I'm too old. So here, I want you to, I want you to go in to my handmaiden. In our culture, in our tradition, you can go in to my handmaiden and she will be the surrogate mom. She will, she will bear the child for me. And we'll have it. We'll fulfill God's promise. See, what they're trying to do is take God's promise and make it happen. And God looks down and says, no, y'all, that's not what I said. What I said was, I'm going to give you to a child. I mean, in fact, if you read in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, there's actually a place where Abraham's wife hears somebody say that, and she laughs out loud about, are you crazy, God? This, this isn't going to happen to me. And what happens then is that Ishmael, who was born of his handmaiden, is not the son of the promise. But then when all else fails, when it can't be explained in any other way, Isaac is born. Isaac is the son, this, this phrase I was reading a minute ago, his one and only son. No, no, he, there was another son, but this is the beloved son. This is the son who was the son of the promise. He was what God had promised to Abraham. And so what, what happens is when Abraham quits trying to take matters into his own hands, God, God begins to work. And this redemption, this miracle takes place. And you have this child born. And the child grows. And then one day, when the, when the child's grown a few years, old enough to know what's going on, God speaks to Abraham. And it's an interesting word. It's used here in Hebrews 11. It's also used in, in Genesis 22 in the story, is that God decided to test Abraham. That's an interesting phrase, because to be very candid with you, um, Jesus was trying to teach people that that. God doesn't test you that much. In fact, if God tests you, it's usually to make you better. It's not to make you be tempted. Because what we're told in the New Testament is that it's not God who tempts us. It's we ourselves who go after our own evil that find the temptation. But there's a difference in temptation and testing. And in the testing, God is looking at Abraham going, well, you know what? I, I promised you something and you took it into your own hands once. So let me just see if you've learned your lesson. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to know, Abraham, that you can trust me with everything. So Abraham, I want you to take this son, Isaac, the son of the promise. I want you to, I want you to get some of your servants. I want you to load up some firewood. I want you to load up all the things you need to start a fire and build an altar and create a, a place to, for sacrifice. But instead of sacrificing a lamb, I want you to sacrifice your beloved son, the son of the promise, the, the one whose very being means that, that, that I'm at work in your life, the, the one whose very being means that you've trusted me with everything and you're not trying to do it yourself. And so, Abraham, I want to test you to say, do you really trust me? Do you really trust me with everything in your life? And so the, the part of the story that the Hebrew writer doesn't tell, because everybody who read this the first time would have known the story, happens in Genesis 22. Some of you know the story. Some of you have never heard it. Let me explain it to you. He packs up everything. 
take some servants. And, and there are a couple of interesting pieces of the dialogue. They go toward this mountain that God has told them to go toward. And they get to the foot of the mountain, and here's a really interesting piece that many people skip. Abraham turns to the servants that are with him, and he says, hey, the boy and I are going up to the top of the mountain, here's the phrase, and we will return. Now, hold on a minute. He's been told that he's to go to the top of the mountain and sacrifice, kill his son. And so he turns at the foot of the mountain and says to the, the servants who are with him, no, I, the boy and I will be back after we make sacrifice. Now, there are some people who read that and they go, well, he just didn't want to tell the guys. But no, listen to me. I think Abraham was in the crucible of faith at that moment. I think he was in that place where he's trusting God and saying, you know what, God, you're saying here, bring my son. I'm bringing my son. That's what you've told me to do. But God, I'm trusting you that my son's coming back with me. But I'm gonna be obedient because I've learned what happens when I'm not obedient. I've learned what happens when I try to do it myself. So God, if this is what you're telling me to do, then I'm going to do it. And so he takes the boy and they go up the mountain. Now, can you imagine being Isaac? I told you he was old enough to know what's going on. And the scripture tells us that he looks at his dad on the way up the mountain. I love this, this dialogue. Uh, dad, we got the wood, we got the rope, we got the knife, we got everything for the sacrifice except for the lamb. Now, can you imagine being Abraham and having to answer that question? Um, uh, son, uh, you're the lamb. No, that's not what he says. What he says is, son, God will provide. See, the writer to the Hebrews, centuries later, is telling us the story on the other side of the dialogue. But in the midst of the dialogue, Isaac is asking his dad, hey, dad, where, where, where's the animal? And then when they get to the top, Abraham takes Isaac and he, he ties his hands. And he ties his feet and he puts him on top of the wood and he's got the fire started to light the wood and, and, he, and he reaches, can, can, is it any wonder when you read the rest of Genesis and you see Isaac's life and all the, all the kind of dysfunction in his life that, you're gonna, that you see in what Isaac did in his life and the crazy stuff that he did, that he had that happen? I mean, if your dad tied you up, put you on an altar, pulled out a knife, was about to take your life, you're gonna be a little messed up. I told you, the Bible's not full of perfect people. It's full of redeemed people. And the promise of the church is not for you to be perfect. It's for you to be redeemed. For you to grow as a disciple, yes. For you to live by the work of the Holy Spirit, yes. But for you to always understand that there but by the grace of God go you. So Isaac's tied up and he's laying on the wood pile of the altar. Abraham... Can you imagine what's going on inside of him? This is the kid who was promised. This is, this is his legacy. This is what he felt was supposed to happen. This is what God did. God, God miraculously gave this child life. And now God is asking him to trust him and to kill the child. I've read the scripture a number of times this week just to make sure I was going to say this correctly to you. But, you know, I always had this mental image that Abraham had the knife raised over, I don't know, some preacher somewhere to, had the knife raised. No, what the scripture actually says is Abraham takes the knife. 
I, I, I personally imagine it this way. The boy's there tied up wondering what in the world's going on. His dad has told him God's going to provide, but it doesn't look like God's going to provide. The fire's over here in the kettle to start, to start, but now he sees his dad taking the knife, and I think Abraham is standing there. And I think this, this battle's going on inside of him. Do I, how much do I trust God? How much do I really trust God? I mean, that's my son. God gave him to me. I love that boy. But God says to sacrifice him. Some of you are parents understand that a little bit. Not, not, not the same. Not, not, not accusing any of you of trying to do a human sacrifice. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. But, but you know that feeling of watching your child choose values and choose a way of life that is and it, totally against anything that you've ever believed. And, and you're standing there. Well, do, I, do I really trust God enough to do what God's asked me to do? Do I really trust God enough to stay loyal to him? Do, do, I, do I really trust God enough to risk, to risk human life, to risk a human being? See, that's where Abraham's standing. And he's looking at the knife. And it's in that moment that suddenly, out of the grace, God redeems that moment. And God says, hey, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Hey, listen, man, put the knife away. Look over in the bush. There's a, there's a lamb. Get that lamb. Because I now know, Abraham, you trust me with everything, even my redemption of your life and my gift of a son. Because here's, here's why the writer tells us that story is because people of faith, people who are legacy makers, are people who trust God to the point of human risk. People who are legacy makers are people who trust God to the point that they're willing to do what makes no human sense. I get, I get all these funny looks from all these people that I meet who say, how did, how, you know, have you always been in Anderson, Indiana? No, I've just been in Anderson, Indiana for this part of my life. Well, where did you come from? I came from Daytona Beach, Florida. Really? You moved to Indiana? From Florida? I said, it's worse than that. I did it in December. And like, how would you do that? Why would you do that? I'm like, because Jesus told me to? Because God invited me to? And I have to tell you, Please, don't tell my friends in Daytona, and if any of you are watching online from Daytona today, you know I love you, all right? But Anderson, Indiana has been the best place in the world for my family. My sons know Jesus. They're, they're living their life for him. We've found wonderful friends. We've found amazing opportunities for ministry. I loved Daytona Beach. I loved that church, but I'm telling you, God had a bigger, better plan for me here. I don't know where you're at today. What I know is this. If you want to have a life that leads a legacy, you've got to actually trust God enough to do what humanly doesn't look smart, to take a risk. You can't do, there, there, there is no way that you can take God's work and put it into something human beings can completely understand. You can trust him, and that's what Abraham did. But the writer doesn't stop with Abraham, no, no. 
No, he, he got, very quickly talks about Abraham, I mean, in, in this passage, you know, it, it's like, okay, when Abraham, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, because basically Isaac was going to die, he did receive Isaac back by the grace of God. And, and what happens is, when you trust God that much, when you're willing to trust God to the point of being a human risk, then you come to a place where you begin to see God do things that break human traditions. You, you come to a place where, where God begins to flip the script. See, legacy makers flip the script on human tradition in order to experience the heart of God. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, Isaac, Isaac has the inheritance. He's the only son. He's the one God has chosen. And so Isaac, if you follow his life and his whole world, he ends up with two sons. He ends up with a, a son named Jacob and a son named Esau. And Esau is the oldest by human tradition. He's the one who will inherit the birthright. And Jacob is the youngest. He's also his mother's favorite. Well, I told you, it's a very dysfunctional family. So, you know, daddy loves the oldest, mama loves the youngest, and, and they actually are at odds on this. And so one day, when they're older, the oldest boy, he's rough and rugged. He's a hunter. He's an outdoor guy. Jacob, the youngest guy, he's more of a stay in and help mom and do that kind of stuff, be around the house. So they're two totally different personalities. But dad loves Esau. Mom loves Jacob. And one day, mom overhears dad telling, telling oldest son Esau, hey, hey, listen, son, I want you to go out and I want you to hunt the way you hunt. Bring back some wild game. I want you to prepare the meat. I have a taste for that. I want you to bring that into me. And when you do, I'm going to bless you with your inheritance, your blessing. Now, Esau had already, out of his own hunger and anger and dysfunction and cockiness, just to be real honest with you, arrogance, had actually already given up his original birthright to his brother Jacob because Jacob tricked him into that over a bowl of soup. But the fact is that now his dad is about to give him the inheritance. But mom hears it. And so mom goes and finds her favorite son. He says, look, 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 you, you need to go and let your dad, let your dad give you your brother's blessing because your dad can't see anymore. His eyesight's bad. So here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna go out. You're gonna get a lamb out of the flock outside the house here. I'm, you're gonna kill the lamb. Bring me the meat. I'm gonna prepare the meat to look and taste just like what your brother would make from the wild game that he's gonna hunt. And then you're going to give it to you. I'm going to put you in your brother's clothes. You're going to deceive your dad. We're going to trick your dad into giving you because you're the youngest one and you're my favorite. And, and what happens is that they make it work. Now, Jacob looks at her and says, Mom, you got to know I love this line. It's one of the best lines in the whole Bible. He says, I, I don't know. My dad, my dad, yeah, he can't see, but he can smell. She's like, no problem. I'll put you in your brother's clothes. It'll smell, you'll smell just like your brother. This is the, my favorite part. He goes, yeah, but you know, I got smooth skin. I don't even like shave yet. My brother's a hairy man. I like that. He's a hairy man, right? 
So how are you going to do that, Mom? Because Dad, you know, he, he can't see, but he can smell and he can touch. And when I put the food in front of him, even if it tastes like what my brother would make, if he feels my hands, it's smooth. No, listen, we're going to take, take the wool off the lamb. Can you imagine how hairy Esau had to be for the lamb's wool to actually be what his dad felt and confuse it? But that's what they did. And, and I tell you that because here's the thing. It, it's this ma- massive dysfunction in the family. But what happens is that Jacob ends up being blessed instead of Esau. When, the, when Esau realized what's happened, he begs his father for a blessing. It's an interesting blessing his father gives him. Because he won't give him the blessing of the, of, of the firstborn because he's already given that to Jacob. And he says, Esau, you're going to serve your brother. But then he says, and you're going to get mad about it. But here's the real blessing he ends up giving him. He said, and at the end of your life, the two of you are going to reconcile. And you're going to be together. But until then, you're going to serve me. And, and there's this whole piece that happens. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because then out of that story, Jacob, Israel, ends up having 12 sons. And one of his sons, okay, one of his sons, in fact, the next to the youngest, born by his favorite wife, is a guy named Joseph. Now, I tell you that because you've got to see what happens. So the, the human tradition is firstborn son gets all the inheritance, but Jacob and Esau ends up, ah, Jacob ends up with the blessing. Then Jacob has sons. His favorite is a guy named Joseph. Joseph, if you know the story, was the favorite. He got a coat of many colors. He was always telling his brothers and his parents about the dreams God gave him. He ends up making his brothers so mad that the brothers throw him in a pit, sell him off to a caravan of Egyptian traders. He ends up in Egypt instead of with his family. And so he's in prison in Egypt because of things that happen that are, he's falsely accused of all kinds of things. He ends up in jail. Then he ends up interpreting dreams. Long story short to say, finally, Pharaoh has a, a dream and he can't interpret it. And somebody used to be in jail with Joseph says, hey, Joseph, uh, hey, Pharaoh, I know this guy named Joseph. He could help to get Joseph out of jail. Joseph interprets the dream. Here's what the dream was. There's going to be seven years of good crops, seven years of bad crops. And during the seven years of good crops, what you need to do is you need to build storage bins so you can save up for the bad years. And what happens is that the Pharaoh listens to him and in fact puts him in charge. And so all these years go by. The famine hits everywhere, not just Egypt. When the famine hits in the other countries, it actually hits where, where Joseph's dad and brothers are. And his entire family comes to Egypt It's a great read to see what God does through Joseph for his family in spite of the dysfunction of the family. But here again, it flips the human tradition because human tradition was the oldest would be the Savior and here Joseph is the Savior. And then when Joseph's reconciled with his brothers and his dad and his dad's getting ready to die, Jacob, Israel is getting ready to die, he they bring Joseph's boys. He's got two sons. Now, the tradition was for the, for the oldest son to have the blessing of the right hand and the younger son to have the blessing of the left hand. And when Joseph brings his two boys in, his dad, Jacob, Israel, who was the second born and received the blessing, actually crosses his hands 
And Joseph goes, oh, no, 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 wait a minute, Dad. No, that's the older one over there. He says, I know what I'm doing. This is what God wants. See, here's what I want you to know. Legacy makers who trust God to the point of human risk. Legacy makers are willing to see God flip the script to break human tradition and human custom in order to experience the heart of God. That's why the writer includes all five of these generations in these few verses and just kind of whips through the story really quick. But it's because the people who were hearing him the first time would have understood. Many of us don't know these stories. That's why I had to take all this time this morning to tell you all these stories. Because I'm telling you these stories because here's the reality. Your family's just as messed up as theirs. Your life has been just as deceived as their life. My life has been just as messed up as their life. The world we live in is just as messed up as that life. But here's the deal. If we're going to have the redemption, if we're going to have the healing, if the brokenness inside of us is going to be healed, then we've got to understand that God is a God who not only asks us to trust him to the point of human risk, he's a God who asks us to trust him to flip the script so that we know what his heart is. And here's the deal. His heart is for you. His heart is for you. No matter how broken, no matter how wounded, no matter how painful, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how much dysfunction, no matter what sin is going on in your life, God's heart is for you. And if he could take out of this mess of a family and bring not only salvation for them, but literally salvation for the entire world, because you gotta know, these are Jesus's ancestors. This is his family reunion too. He said, oh, no, but Jesus was the son of God and Mary. Yeah, yeah. Remember, read Matthew. Not only is Joseph the father of Jesus a descendant from David, who was a descendant from all of these guys, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, was descended from all of them as well. Oh, and in case you really don't want to embrace this, let me just tell you, read the book of Romans and you'll find out that the Apostle Paul draws the analogy and says this, it's not the people who were born biologically as descendants of Abraham who are the children of Abraham, it's the people who have the same kind of faith Abraham had who are the real children of Abraham and that's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. And so, Pastor, why are you talking to us about a legacy of vision about this? Because here's the vision. The vision is you can be whole. The vision is you can be redeemed. The vision is no matter how broken you are, no matter how sad your life is, no matter how dysfunctional your family is, if you will walk with Jesus. See, we always want to ask Jesus to walk with us. But if you will walk with Jesus, I promise you what the Bible's about from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, is about people who walk with God in spite of their failure. And they learn to do something that's just downright amazing. I mean, when the script got flipped, Isaac invoked future blessings on both Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's that crossing of the hands. But here's the most amazing part. Go, go, go straight to the next scripture, if you would. Skip that slide and go back to, go to the next scripture. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. So here's Joseph, having been used by God to redeem his family. He's in Egypt. His sons have been blessed by his dad. His family's been re reunited. And now suddenly, he's talking about when they're going to leave Egypt. 
And he's talking as he's getting ready to die where he's going to go and saying to his sons and the rest of his family, take my bones to the promised land. Take me where God has called me to go because God has called all of us to go to the promised land. See, here's the, here's the thing you've got to know. Legacy makers are people who not only trust God to the point of human risk, not only flip the script on human tradition in order to be able to experience the heart of God, but they also are people who see today in light of tomorrow. So now, Pastor, what do you mean? You see, most of us see tomorrow in light of today. Most of us see tomorrow, the future, in terms of what we've already experienced. We don't see the future in terms of the promise of God. We don't see the future in terms of the redemption of God. No, we see the future based on what we've already experienced. If we've been abused, if we've been abandoned, if we've been, we see, oh, then that's gonna happen to us tomorrow, so we try to guard our hearts from it. No, here's what happens. When you are a legacy maker who has vision, when you're a person who is willing to trust God with every part of your being, when you're a person who's willing to let God flip the script on human tradition in order to be able to show you his heart for you and for the world, then suddenly he begins to develop in you the ability to see today, not in light of your past. Yes, you, you, it's your past. It's gonna impact you. But to see to, to today in light of tomorrow and understand that what has hurt you, what has pained you, what has broken you in the past does not have to hurt you, pain you, break you in the future. Because you've got a promised land. You have a promise from God who sent his one and only son for you. So, so this morning, I, I don't know where you are. I don't know how dysfunctional your individual family is. I, I don't know what kind of kind of brokenness you're experiencing. But what I know is this. The God who spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph is right here, right now, speaking to you. The question is whether or not you'll hear him. Sometimes we think, well, I don't hear God. Yeah, that's not because God quit speaking. That's because you quit listening. <laughs> And so what I'm going to ask you to do today is to take just a moment to listen to me. In fact, if you're on campus with us, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow your head and just close your eyes. Would you do that? Everybody, a balcony, main floor, wherever you're at. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just in the silence of this moment, if you're in the place where you're willing to say, where you're listening to God and God is saying, you know what, I really want you to trust me with everything. I really want you to let me flip the script in your life and show you my heart. I really want you to let me show you the promise of tomorrow so it'll impact today. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Wherever you are, just if you wanna just raise your head and open your eyes and look at me and just say, hey, pastor, would you pray for me? Because I wanna do that. Let's pray. 
Abba, Papa, Heavenly Father. Thank you that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph, that none of them were perfect. So we don't have to be. And thank you that there are these people here on campus. And, and Lord, for those who are online and, and on demand, I pray that you'd just give them the courage to, to step into the prayer room with Pastor Preston and some of the team there. I, I pray that you'd allow them to also know what we're experiencing here, that, that you are calling us forward. You're calling us not just to be dreamers, but to be visionaries. Calling us to, to see things differently in light of who you are and your promise. And today, Lord, I pray that for every person who, who just raised their eyes and made eye contact with me or slipped a hand up or got into a chat room or hit an emoji or whatever it is, that, that, that you would speak right now to them. Let them know how loved they are. Let them know how much you want to redeem their life and make them whole. Lord, it's in your name, Jesus. Your strong name that we pray. Amen. If you're on campus, would you stand with us? Let's worship together. It's you. 